This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who, as usual, is calling in from London. On this episode of EAH, we are joined by Tomas Tronstad, Head of Shipping and Technology for the New Energy Division at Wilhelmsen Group. Wilhelmsen Group is headquartered in Norway and operates the world's largest maritime network with more than 4,400 personnel at 2,200 ports in 125 countries. They are committed to developing new opportunities and collaborations in renewables, zero emission shipping, and marine digitalization. And we are delighted to have Tomas with us today to speak with us about how hydrogen fits into those initiatives. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. All right. Let's get this episode started. So, Patrick, it's COP week. We've been talking about it all year. You've been excited all year. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what's uh, what you're expecting. I mean, you know, there's been Arnie. Arnie, I don't know if you've been watching on the BBC, has been very, very upset about COP. Arnold Schwarzenegger is convinced nothing meaningful is going to happen. Boris thinks it's going to be the greatest thing ever. Biden may or may not have a plan for it. And Xi Jinping doesn't seem to want to turn up. So... <laughs> it's it's not a quiet one. Does does that mean you're not going, Chris? That's the that's what all the listeners want to know. Are, are you are you heading up to Glasgow? And if they're there, can they find you? No, I mean, sadly, uh, we're not going up to COP. I mean, I, I think many people will know that the logistics around COP are an absolute nightmare at the moment. I mean, it, it, there's, yeah, I think 15,000 spare beds at any given time on COP, and they think 20,000 plus are supposed to be four more guests, and then there's the rest. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a total, total mess. Heads of state in a dorm room. Yeah, well, no, there are there are um, cruise ships where they've they pull extra cruise ships in. There's people in student accommodation. There's people driving from Edinburgh across. I mean, it's completely and utterly bonkers. Um, and then Airbnb is all maxed out too. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, and then I don't know if you saw the uh, the mascot for Glasgow is a recycled mascot from 2016. Which um, there's, there was a story going around the UK saying that. Uh, that uh, Glasgow has a lot of rats, which really upset the Glasgow government. But then, of course, the mascot came out. The mascot is meant to be a seal, but the seal mascot looks a little bit like a drowned rat. So, <laughs> so everyone is saying, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a great start. <laughs> no, no, it, it has ill omen for COP. Well, well, look, I think this is also a good moment to plug our, our, our deep dive episode with the industry or energy and industry uh, head for the, the high level champions team. 
I think folks folks should should listen in and learn a little bit more about what's been going on in the lead up to COP and what the the HLC team have been doing for the last little while. But COP, let's talk about it directly. Uh, look, it's it's Glasgow. It's we've lost last year's one up for obvious reasons to everyone, but um, now we're here, and I have a funny feeling there's going to be a huge amount around hydrogen coming out of it, and I think there's going to be a a lot of ambition. But also, I think, you know, critically, um, this, this is one that, that kind of matters, right? Like if, if we get the standard kind of talk that comes out of these rather than a bit more kind of tangible outputs where we're kind of, and uh, I don't know what the, the, the appropriate phrase would be, but it, it will not be encouraging. Having said that, obviously, the UK has, has had a pretty ambitious agenda. I think, you know, for instance, on the hydrogen front, India's uh, blending mandates have caused a lot of uh, interest and obviously acceleration there. And I think, you know, with the US in particular, like the Earthshot work is is well underway. So, um, so yeah, like there's a lot of reason to be hopeful and ambitious and, and, uh, We'll see what comes out. And sadly for this week, we, we Andrew was very kindly able to join us for the interview with Wilhelmsen, but um, has been sort of otherwise engaged. At, you know, the, for those who aren't aware, Andrew's uh, the chief counsel for Biotech and um, probably one of the busiest men I, I know. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're trying to see them where we can. But it seems like there's been quite a bit of movement on uh, a potential price support mechanism in, in the States, Patrick. I mean, they've just gave the first details of the UK's hydrogen price support. So it seems like that side of the market too, not just the CapEx side, not just the regulatory framework, but actually what are the business models for those first projects to to avoid that first mover disadvantage. And I emphasize strongly avoid the first mover disadvantage as opposed to purely saying that these things don't work. I'm not going to repeat Siemens Energy CEO, the new Siemens Energy CEO's line of uh, green hydro projects must be subsidized, which I think was, um, <laughs> I don't think he was quite brief to say that. I'm not sure he meant to say that, but um, you know, but it's, it's encouraging to see them coming out of the States. Are you optimistic about those? Yeah, it got to be. Um, you know, look, it's not so- said and done yet, right? There's obviously, and I think anybody who's paying attention to any of the the kind of the administration-led kind of spending bills, infrastructure bills, whatnot, it, you know, is aware that there's been a lot of horse trading, and there still is. But on the hydrogen front, and, and related to this, um, it looks it looks good, and it looks like we're going to have potentially some level of a PTC. Um, what that actually means, and what we finally get, I think, is still a little up in the air, but Definitely leaning towards green, I think positively in the way that that you know, kind of a, a PTC style ramp down over X period of years once you got to get steel in the ground kind of thing is probably ha- what we're looking at. We'll have to watch and see what the, the mechanism or the details are and how much money goes into this as well, obviously. But you know, if you want to accelerate a, a hydrogen economy, the, the the first thing you can do is subsidize people to build today and give them a credit that maybe keeps them cost competitive with the next generation of projects that comes out in five years time right and you know actually give that clarity of length of uh, of build so um or length of offtake i should say yeah look it's good it's positive it's been in the works for probably several months now there's been there's been champions on the hill you know we've we've talked about this a little bit in in previous episodes but there are plenty of of senators who and uh, you know and others who've been working pretty hard on this and really trying to, to develop stuff. So fingers crossed. And um, yeah, we'll see what happens next. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so and, and you know, in the UK, we I think uh, a few people might have been aware. Several um, several sort of announcements were made around hydrogen projects. So the government announced its two industrial cluster locations, so the northeast and the northwest, uh, which was for listeners, you know, it, it was a little bit unusual. So the UK government, basically, for the CCS Blue Hydrogen Competition. Um, was a, was saying that they were going to put two projects first, award two projects, and then they were going to sequence the rest so that they come in later years. And the awarding was done on where the CO2 would be stored, not on where the industrial cluster was based. So the first winner was in the northeast, and it's kind of a it's a twofer. So they've tied up Hull and the Humber region as well as Teesside by storing um, CO2 from both of those in the northeast. And then to many people's surprise, Hynet in the Northwest won and Acorn in Scotland didn't. So again, this isn't to say that they may not build Acorn in Scotland at a later date. It's just to say that that's now track two and Hynet is track one, which a few people were surprised by because we thought Scotland was definitely going to get something. So um, that's been quite interesting. Um, And of course, we were, as Brosio, able to announce our project with uh, Budweiser UK, which was came out at the same time as the PM was announcing his uh, 10 billion of new clean energy investments in the UK. So nice for a change to actually be able to talk about uh, some of our project work there as well. Um, and we'll, I know we're going to do a show later in the year. And- I was just going to say, you're going to have to come on and tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, well, we all year have been threatening to do it. So, uh, so you know, now we're excited to be able to actually do it. I think I think that one's for December, actually, the, the protein one. I think we're going to be chatting in December to our listeners. So, we can uh, tell you a little bit about what Proteam's doing then and uh, hopefully it'll be interesting. But I think conscious of the fact that we're running out of time, um, I want to pick up on... Uh, huh? To the matter at hand. To the matter at hand. So, you know, obviously it's COP week and one of the big things about COP is going to be looking at global solutions and what is a more global issue for decarbonisation than the shipping industry. So today, absolutely delighted to have with us Thomas Tronstad, who is the Head of Shipping and Technology at Wilhelmsen Group. Wilhelmsen is a Norwegian leading shipping company, and they're going to talk a little bit about what they're considering and the projects they're working on in the hydrogen space, um, with me and Andrew going through some questions with them. You know, for a little bit of background, Thomas was also um, the managing director at Hyon, which was a, and, and is, sorry, still a company that focuses on how do you integrate and deploy hydrogen solutions uh, in the Scandinavian market and actually does a lot of the shipping side. So Thomas is really fantastic level of technical knowledge and understanding of these issues. So it should be an exciting interview. Um, I don't know, Patrick, before we uh, before we get him on the line, if there's anything else you want to add? Only that, that this is a, this is going to be an interesting one because shipping is, is facing it into a, a pretty critical transition. And uh, yeah, I think I think interested to hear what, what Thomas has to say around some of the, the technology transitions and the fleet uh, transitions that are going to have to occur given given the life of assets and the challenges around uh, around shipping but uh looking forward to it sounds good let's get him on the line Tomas, thank you so much for joining us uh if you wouldn't mind starting out by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh also uh, quite a bit about uh, uh wilhelmsen in the background of what you guys are doing at the wilhelmsen group within the hydrogen space Thank you, and it's a pleasure being here. So I have a background from shipping, working 30 years in shipping on the technical side. My red line through my career has actually been kind of pushing new technology onto shipping. That means in the old days, in the 90s, and actually late 80s when I studied, that meant gas turbines at that time. 
but through my career, uh, that had, had that has been in, including actually fuel cells already from the millennium time, uh, the change of the millennium. It was the kind of the one of the first big in, in investors time for putting money onto that technology at that time. But it, it flopped because the technology didn't follow up on the commercial side. But well, I can I can get back to that. But so my my career has been on the environmental side and technology side of shipping for many many years. And lately, I've been heading the company Hyon, which was a joint venture on with three leading technology companies on the hydrogen side. Uh, but I've been very fortunate recently to to start working for Williamson Group. Uh, that's actually quite recently this summer. So. Um, Excuse me for being a bit vague, maybe on some of the old good Williamson things. I haven't got all of that under my skin yet. But I can tell if, if you want to know a little bit about Williamson Group, I can give a short glimpse into what that is. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you can speak a little bit to Wilhelmsen, I think, you know, it doesn't need to be too detailed, but just for the benefit of our audience, you can tell us a little bit about who they are and uh, the kind of sectors that they work in within the shipping space, what kind of vessels they operate, that sort of thing. So... Just to give a glimpse into to Williamson, uh, Williamson is a shipping conglomerate, meaning that we are having quite some activities in the shipping uh, area. Uh, so traditionally, Williamson was a ship owner, but that has moved to now we are active, you know, being a com- comprehensive global maritime group, providing essential products and services to the merchant fleet. That's Williamson Ship Service, along with supplying crew and technical management, which is Williamson Ship Management. So just just some some of it, and and we do this to the largest and most complex vessels ever to sail. And uh, Williamson Group, as such, is not a ship owner, but we we are owners of companies such as the Valenus Williamson Group, owning car carriers uh, mainly. And so, Thomas, something to just uh, maybe kind of go through a little bit here is: can you talk about some of the challenges around decarbonization that you're seeing within the shipping industry? And you know, our, our listeners are a little bit nerdy, like we are. So, if there are specific challenges that are unique to different classes of vessels or even different territories, it'd be great if you could speak to that as well. Great, thanks. This is my fa- favorite topic. So, you know, shipping has for many, many years kind of solved the global problem, meaning that you have all these refineries where we use all the oil that we we, we have to make all the products that we need. You know, it's a gas for the cars, it's a jet fuel, so all these finer, nice things that comes out of of the dirty oil. But then at the bottom of that refinery, you have all the sludge. You have enormous amount of sludge. So what do you do with that? Uh, today, we are using it mainly for two purposes. One is asphalt, you know, actually. And the other one is where the sh- shipping industry has actually made a, a solution to that problem, being able to use it and u- utilize this sludge and slurry as, as a fuel. And that has been working for quite some years. And that's that's nothing to take light on. It's what quite some work to get that sludge to be to be to be a fuel in diesel engines. Uh, and of course, a problem comes when you have 70,000 ships equipped for these solutions and you suddenly start to realize that this is a problem. Uh, we, we, we just can't go on burning that type of fuel anymore. And the ship has a lifetime of maybe 20, 30 years. So what do you do with 70,000 ships being equipped for these solutions? That's where the ship, shipping industry are. And then put on top, top of that, that shipping has traditionally been, been quite conservative meaning that it hasn't been at the forefront of taking use of, of new technology. It has been stick to old ways of doing business and old technology in a way that were mature and, and we, we knew how, how to deal with. 
which has made shipping suddenly being kind of uh, not leading at all on the front of being environmental friendly. And that is changing quite drastically now. Um, there are, you know, stricter and stricter rules and regulations coming on, on this that the ship, shipping industry need to find solutions for and, and has to uh, deal with in the years to come. And maybe just putting you on the spot a little bit there, Thomas, a follow-up question. I mean, you know, you, you speak about sort of the importance of shipping to the um, refinery sector. And actually, it's a comment that I've heard from several people that they've said one of the ways you start to undermine the business case for fossil fuels is by dealing with bunker fuels and by getting phasing out bunker fuels as quick, quickly as possible because you turn that um, from being a product into being a deadweight cost. But then you also spoke about the life of these vessels and said, you know, they, they last for such a long time and they're such big capital investments. How's Wilhelms looking at current vessels already out there today and how you can transition them away so as quickly as possible without the need to replace necessarily the whole vessel at once? Is that an area of interest for you? Or are you more focused on new ship design rather than uh, adjustments or retrofits to existing models? I would say both. Clearly, I mean, we are, of course, interested in new technology, but of course, we also have to, uh, you know, face the fact that we have a lot of vessels and what what you do with them. And I think it's we have to put here that the shipping industry has been quite good at making some of these traditions you know, transformations. So uh, you will have to remember that some years ago, we already started in the ship shipping industry, started using more and more of the low sulfur fuels which also was kind of a, a case that brought in new technology and a lot of operational kind of constraints and, and the challenges that we actually dealt with. Picking up a little bit from there, I mean, you know, there is clearly then um, this need to think about those two areas, right? How do you get people excited about the future of shipping? And then how do you decarbonize the existing shipping market? You know, with regards to Wilhelmsen and, and where it sees its kind of role in the space, can you talk a little bit about hydrogen and also then the different derived fuels of hydrogen so you know does Wilhelmsen have a view on whether you're more interested in green hydrogen versus green ammonia or green methanol are you equally interested in all of the above you know maybe you can talk a little bit to that yeah so as to kind of the new fuels I mean I would say that the jury is still out whether and what what type of fuel will actually be the winning and I think maybe in the future we'll see a lot of them being used and, and them meaning kind of you have hydrogen, liquid or gaseous, you have ammonia, you have uh, uh, carbon neutral met methanol, you have synthetic fuels like LOHC. And, and these types of fuel will, I think, co coexist. They will have niches and, and, and I think it's still, I mean, a rough, a rough way of looking at this is that short shipping will will of course be available for uh, hydrogen i would uh, that's that's our our take um, and then again a lot of the solutions will first be checked out and 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 used in short sea shipping that's all all history shows that all the paradigm shifts that has gone from you know we've gone gone from wind to steam and from steam to diesel all these shifts have started with uh, short sea shipping because it's easier it's more kind of con con constrained solutions and and so we will see short sea shipping uh, with typical hydrogen, and of course there will be challenges from ammonia also to that sector. And then we think other solutions might be the winning parties for uh, for the longer routes, clearly. 
listeners on our show are going to probably be familiar with this refrain. And it's a pity Patrick's having uh, uh, some connection issues today because he's really our shipping expert, at least within us, <laughs> within our podcast. But I think what's interesting is that we talk a lot about the different timelines, even within the transport and transportation sector writ large, right? I mean, we talk about light duty vehicles today being able to transition we talk about uh, heavy-duty vehicles as being the next step, and then we talk about aviation, and then probably next down the line is the shipping and uh, and uh, sea transport sector because of the long timelines for transitions. So, but that all being said, you've touched on this right just now, which is there have been a lot of announcements. I think recently there's been a lot of activity uh, around carbon-neutral vessels and decarbonizing transport, you know, o- ocean transport and shipping more generally. What, uh, why do you think it is that that pace is, is picking up so dramatically in recent times? I mean, is there a, a driver other than something like the IMO changes or is, you know, how is Wilhelmsen looking at the, at the pace of change that you guys are seeing in the shipping industry? Yeah, I would say it's, it's different things coming up. I mean, you clearly have the kind of motivation and the drive from the political side, clearly. But we also see a awakening among the cargo owners that they request cleaner tra- transport. And then I would say, going back to what I started with that uh, 20 years ago, there was something you could call a hype of hydrogen. Um, and But the technology didn't fo- follow up. At that time, it was still too costly and, and the solutions wasn't there for the maritime sector. But I think this is changing now. So we see that technology is kind of picking up and, and answering to the to the quest. So I think on the techno- technological side of having solutions for shipping, meaning hydrogen and fuel cells and storage solutions and different types, both both for cryogenic and, and gases and, and um, all these things I think will be there in place now. We see it's, it's coming more and more. I don't feel at all any scared or frightened because uh, in terms of the technological things here. Yeah, absolutely. No. I, so I think you know, listeners would be particularly interested, Tomas, and I know that you uh, are are one of the people at Wilhelmsen leading, or at least well placed to talk about this particular project. But could you tell us a little bit about the Topeka project and what you guys are doing with that at Wilhelmsen? I believe it's uh, it's quite cutting edge, so I think it would be something we'd be delighted to hear a bit about. Yeah. So in the Wilhelmsen, we have a company called Topeka. Uh, Topeka is actually a a um, zero emission ship owning com- company. So, and the idea behind this is actually to try to kind of break this chicken and egg dilemma. So you, we see along the Norwegian coast now, and we are very fortunate being, being that, you know, having headquarters in, in Northern Europe, where there actually are quite some activities on this right now. So, but what we see is that there are more and more production facilities being planned and, and um, underway. So we think hydrogen will be av- available, of course, but they, they, they need to have an uptake. They need to have hydrogen being kind of on a, a demand. So t- Topeka is to answer on that. Topeka is going to be se- several things in a ship solution. So the first product that this ship-owned company will undertake is to build two vessels that is going to both transport hydrogen in bulk from the production facilities to bases along along the coast where it's going to be offered to to the market of course this vessel will run also on hydrogen them, 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 themselves 
and the vessel will be part of the normal uh, transport of cargo and, and, and goods between the offshore ba bases. So the plan here is that the company North Sea, which is a, uh, a supplying uh, services to the offshore uh, sector, they have offshore bases along the west coast of Norway, and the plan is then to transport hydrogen from the production facility at the central place to the different bases and, and offer hydrogen, um, and also other stuff like ammonia, LOHC, charging of batteries, normal diesel solutions, all, all that you have so that we in this, the, actually the, the North Sea basis is transformed from being today offshore basis and to become also an energy hubs in the future. In some ways, I don't know if you would like this characterization to most, so feel free to reject it if you don't, <laughs> if you don't like it. But it sounds like you guys are building sort of a microcosm of a maritime hydrogen economy or a hydrogen-based economy through a, through a Topeka type of, uh, a, through the Topeka project. Would that be a fair way of characterizing that? Yeah, that's a fair way of putting it, absolutely. And of course, we are not doing this in a vacuum. This is doing, uh, we, we are doing this, and it's also part of a bigger plan. I mean, uh, Norway's plan is to, to, to establish hubs along the coast, and our kind of quest and goal, goals here uh, match those nicely. I think the Topeka project is particularly fascinating. And so you mentioned, of course, that you're not doing it in a vacuum, that this is part of, uh, you know, part of a Northern European, European plan, but also you mentioned Norway, obviously, at the home of Wilhelmsen. Is the project, uh, does the project take funding or does is the government involved in any way with the Topeka project or any of uh, Wilhelmsen's decarbonization place? Yeah, that's right. So Topeka has already kind of these two first vessels, these, those, or that project has already received um, funding for the um, cap capital investment, the, 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 you know, the, the, the more cost, the added cost of this new equipment, the hydrogen and the fuel cells and uh, these kind of solutions. So we have received funding from the pub public side from a uh, national body called ENOVA. And we have also established a pan-European project together with a lot of other st strong partners which are kind of dealing more with the, de the design of the vessel itself. And that product had also received funding from uh, EU. So from ENOVA, we had received roughly 200 or let's say 21 million euro and from EU, 8 million euro. You're doing the uh, doing the, the Krona conversion there? <laughs> the I'm doing the Krona co conversion for you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that because that would have been a problem for me. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. It's very it's very sweet. It's, it, yeah, I think this is the headache we have, you know, because half the team think in dollars, the other half think in pounds, and then, yeah, all the guests think in different currencies too. I, I guess the question that I had for you was, you know, and I think Andrew was flagging, you know, what is really exciting sort of step in this direction, which is kind of building this ecosystem of uh, infrastructure for hydrogen in the maritime space. Obviously, Norway has been for a long time a pioneer in thinking about the sort of infrastructure needed to decarbonize shipping and led on a lot of the LNG bunkering initiatives, which for many people was prior to hydrogen seen as the sort of logical, probably next step, if you like. What lessons from that initial work and build out of LNG bunkering that Norway has spent a lot of time and money investing in, do you think can be taken and applied across to the hydrogen space? 
One lesson is uh, that th this time we need to make it much uh, qu quicker, the tra transformation. It's gone, it's, it, it, it has t taken some time with LNG. And I think clearly we will have quite some wins to take from some of the rulemaking pro processes, both in IMO and, and also the class societies and so on. And I think also uh, the way we see that this is now working with LNG being available, I think more and more ports understand, see that the future will be kind of a myriad of solutions. You will have on not only one type of fuel. And I think kind of winnings from that is something that we can gain on. And clearly, uh, I would say for the crew on board, being kind of more and more you know, used to, to handle other things than diesel, that's important. After all, I think it's extremely important to remember the crew on board these ships in the future. They are going to handle all this being kind of, is, is it kind of dangerous ammonia? Is it hydrogen? Clearly, there will be new kind of safety issues, new new things come coming up for the crew and the ha handling of all these things. And, and we have to remember that this is the pe people on board who ultimately feel this on, on their day, daily work. And I think it's important to know how good we have made it with LNG. There's not been any kind of big dis disasters there. And I think we have been both clever and good and um, with with that. And that's some, something to bring with us. And maybe just playing devil's advocate here, Thomas, because I think it's important, you know, to to kind of think these things out a little bit is when some people will comment on the LNG space, they'll kind of go, well, yes, there were a lot of lessons learned and some decarbonization was achieved. But in some ways, many people might say it ended up being a distraction from some of the decarbonization alternatives. Is there a fear or a concern that uh, hydrogen in the maritime space in Norway might end up being similar to the LNG story? Or is there sort of, a, if you like, a greater confidence around it? Or has in some ways the LNG experience actually made the Norwegian shipping sector and, and companies like Wilhelms are more confident um, of the need for a fuel or a gas as part of the decarbonization process in shipping and the hydrogen, you know, therefore is more certain in its future in that sort of industry? That's an interesting question. I would say that I think... Clearly, I hope, but I also think that you you mentioned Norway as a case, and of course, uh, what I would say is that the reason why LNG didn't kind of succeed in the way we maybe hoped was that it was seen as something that would add a lot of issues without really solving too much of the problems. Uh, but I think also that we have learned quite a lot from that. And I think this time, uh, with, with the momentum and the pace going on in, in the green shift, we have so many things kind of supporting much more the case for these new, new fuels than we had for LNG at that time. We have kind of, no, no, the, the, the larger green shift movement is so big. Shipping industry clearly has become such a kind of uh, slow mover on, on getting things done on the cleaning side. So I think the momentum is stronger. I think we have already gained some experience. And I think um, that's why we will at this time see more rapid and a, a more u uniform change in the years to come. Well, so I think that kind of leads to the final question, really, um, which we wanted to sort of wrap up on today, which was, you know, what is the future for Wilhelms? And I mean, you know, this is a company that's evolved over the years. This is a space that, as we've discussed on the show, is clearly evolving um, and clearly is going to play a huge role. I mean, Patrick is fond of using the, you know, of talking about the fact that shipping is 3% of uh, global emissions and uh, untreated will be 6% of global emissions by 2050. And previous guests have talked about the sheer volume of fuel 
So we've had Alicia Eastman commenting on, you know, you would need 65 of Intercontinental Energy's West Australia projects, each one the size of the Three Gorges Dam, to produce enough green ammonia to decarbonize shipping. So, you know, in that massive challenge with all those enormous opportunities, where does Wilhelmsen see its future role? Clearly, I mean, um, Wilhelmsen is going to continue to be a shaper of the maritime industry, and that's being on a wide basis. So we are doing that on leveraging on, on the new opportunities coming with the new technology, such as the more efficient and clean ship operation and also the new business models that comes, for instance, within this in lack of a better word, digitalization of the industry. So I think that's that's the future. And then, of course, um, who am I to predict how that will look like 20 years from now? But that's that's kind of the the starting point, the way I see it. Not the starting point, but where where we have 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 been and and will continue to be. Very good, Andrew. Any final questions for Thomas before uh, we stop torturing him with our interrogation <laughs> questions? No, I think this is a perfect way to end, to wrap things up. And I think uh, Tomas, uh, if I you know may say so myself, you're probably pretty well positioned to tell uh, <laughs> to tell some of us where the future of the shipping industry is going. So really delighted to have you on, and really appreciate the time. Uh, you know, you guys are doing some fascinating work at Wilhelmsen, so it's an uh, absolute pleasure to get your uh, your input and to to get your time today. So thank you so much, Tomas. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Biotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. Right, so... Patrick, nice for you to join us. So, you know, obviously, you know, fantastic to have a chance to chat with uh, Thomas. For those who perhaps aren't so aware about this as well, so Thomas obviously now is the head of shipping and technology with Wilhelmsen. But, you know, actually, Thomas's sort of previous hat um, was with Hyun um, and then DMVGL. So quite an interesting kind of background to come into the space, you know, coming from that really deep technical understanding and from that sort of system configuration and optimization piece. I mean, did you feel that, you know, there was anything that surprised you about the comments that Thomas was making about how Wilhelmsen wants to approach the market, where they see as the near-term versus long-term opportunities? Was there anything there that you sort of felt, you know, in your tower as RMI that you were like, ah, oh, I've not heard that one before? This is this is two slaps you've given me in the last the last two seconds. One implies that I'm not working, and the other is I'm in an ivory tower. I think I think I think neither is 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 the case. Just I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Do you call Colorado like an ivory rock? Is like an ivory mountain instead of an I ivory think, tower? I, I I think the lack of sleep's getting to you now that you you know like all these nights out post COVID in the UK, right? I, I'm I'm based in DC, Chris, not in Colorado. Oh, I know. I, I know you are. You are in. You are really in the. You know the ivory capital. <laughs> no, look, look. It's one of these conversations that is starting to certainly emerge in the shipping space around. Okay, we've done the very low sul- uh, uh, sulfur fuel oils 
we've made that initial step, the IMO trajectories, we've seen things like the Poseidon principles that have forced kind of uh, financiers to report their their um, portfolio carbon alignment or alignment with the IMO targets specifically, you know, and now, now the conversation is moving towards, okay, what is a net zero potential for the industry? What is a, you know, what is a one and a half degree aligned trajectory? And what does that mean? And inevitably, that means talking about whether it be e-methanol, whether it be talking about ammonia, whether it be talking about direct hydrogen systems, whether it be talking about moving away from internal combustion engines to fuel cells, we're talking about a transition and an active technology and fueling transition. And and I think to Thomas's kind of points, you know, and I think maybe this is one of the questions you asked, we, we have uh, a wonderful situation where you know, the, the, the byproduct or the waste product out of our refineries has been fueling the, the shipping industry for, for a very long time now. And suddenly that's going to go away. It means, it means that you're talking about a whole, whole huge impact on, on the shipping system, right? And what the, the supply chain looks like for that. But also, and critically, it has very direct knock-on implications for refining. So we start to see in this space a really very direct linkage between the fuel substitution uh, conversation the the speed of it the necessity for it and and the actual you know challenges where the rubber hits the road right the the direct kind of how do you actually deploy globally at scale the volumes that are required to keep the the global shipping market up and running and you know there are challenges certainly with getting um getting access to to green fuels at the volume right so like this is this is where when we see these huge you know 25 terawatt uh hour or yeah was it terawatts of, of projects required for you know the the end transition right like this is the sort of thing that causes those numbers to come into actuality i mean one thing that sort of uh, we got onto so sort of towards you know the latter stages of the conversation was that you know uh, Norway has been an incredible hotbed for some of this uh, sort of activity, especially around decarbonization of shipping. And, and again, it, it sort of points to, I guess, one of the things that makes the transition in some ways quite hard, which is, you know, unless you start with a phenomenal endowment of natural capability, right? And in Norway's case, fresh water access, incredible abundance of renewable resources, as well as fossil resources, and then phenomenal financial wealth to do things you know it's quite hard to be actually able to implement and innovate in some of these areas in the same way but then conversely the same problem the problem that then comes after that is how do you scale from there because it's quite a small domestic market so yes you can innovate and come up with these brilliant ideas but how do you move them abroad and 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 maybe one of the best examples of that i can think of is the lng bunkering side of shipping right which was for a long time and still by many would be considered to be a way of sort of moving towards the decarbonization of that industry because actually again if you're talking about air quality certainly moving from bunker fuel to air quality does have uh, to lng does have an air quality benefit Um, it's definitely very widely available now you still have the sort of people are familiar with it. The technology is a bit more understood, which again are things that play well in the current market. And you know, to the idea of how do you help to undermine the bunker fuel market today? Again, switch to LNG does do that. But despite all of those reasons, we haven't really seen a mass move into LNG in shipping, um, despite significant infrastructure being spent in places like Norway. And I wonder, is there almost a lesson learned in that? for the guys going into hydrogen on the shipping side to say, how do you avoid a situation whereby, you know, you end up spending a large amount of money on infrastructure, 
for a particular type of use case for hydrogen, which may actually very quickly be superseded by something else, right? I mean, should it be liquid hydrogen from day one as opposed to gaseous? Should it be methanol from day one with green hydrogen creating the green methanol you know and obviously there are different companies placing quite different bets on this right i mean the liquid wind approach from sweden is it's going to be green methanol the intercontinental energy is mostly ammonia but maybe some green methanol air products again is green ammonia you know and then you do have people going for the pure hydrogen so how do you think about the maritime investing without actually getting into this horrible position where like an over have just done, you spend 20 odd million euro or, you know, and then, and then actually find out maybe that doesn't make sense. And you end up with a second network alongside the LNG network that doesn't, neither of them have enough vehicles that marine vessels to scale to get you to where you actually need to get to. I think, I think to Thomas's, to Thomas's point, when, when talking about LNG, one, one of the challenges uh, that they faced is, is, you know, a very straightforward recognition that this isn't a transition, right? It is, uh, an, an intermediate step. And as an investor in a, in a vessel, you've got to ask yourself, okay, do I, do I want to be left holding an asset potentially that is stranded in the same way that you're talking about? And I think, I think that inherently has, uh, has a risk that causes the actual ship builders, like when commissioned or like, like the, the actual ship owners, I should say, rather than ship builders to, to have hesitancy about how hard and deeply they're going to commit right so i think that's something that lng really suffered from you know to to your point was it better than hfo for sure right like there's there's you know lng vessels far better but when when you're feeling the pressure already to shift from a heavy fuel oil to something else that's cleaner and you know the standard is only going to get cleaner those intermediate steps become risky they become shaky, frankly, and and that's what LNG suffered from. The other the other aspect of this, and I think it's worth worth flagging, is that you know the fleet is long long lived, right? We're we're talking, I think it's eight or ten thousand vessels globally, right? You're 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 talking about you know for deep sea anyway, for for very large deep sea, but you're really talking about you know vessels that'll be on on the sea for you know twenty ish years plus maybe maybe ten more depending on how you retrofit and manage, you know maybe even longer, right? But, you know, you can have a transition plan, but your transition plan comes when, when you need to change the asset or when the asset is ready to be changed, right? And I think, I think what we're, we're looking into right now is, you know, some of the different dynamics around volumetric kind of energy densities, right? So what routes are you running? What fuels are more likely to be available in different places? Like, you know, how do we avoid the risks here? Um, well, there's a couple. There's a couple of points, right? So the first I would say, and this this stands well for hydrogen in general, but but obviously ammonia uh, and uh, various related uh, industries could do quite well out of this. Um, which is that the industrial hub conversation has continued to gain momentum, right? So multi-use case, you know, so like you know fertilizer production have your your ammonium nitrate or your aum or uan um or kind of urea production on at the port have the steel production facility at the port right so now you've got a hydrogen feedstock base and and you've got your some of the the kind of bulkier commodities that you're going to go move also there and now you've got you know your supply chain and and all these industries you know, carrying the weight of that infrastructure build out rather than, uh, and as you flag, the risk that LNG has had, which is 
okay, you get your LNG to the port and now you're just injecting it into the pipelines and you're hoping that the, 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 just the general grid is going to carry the weight, right? So essentially LNG is carrying the weight of the, the regasification. It's carrying the weight of everything else around it. So there are some lessons to be learned for sure in terms of how you design and build this stuff out. And it, it, you know, there's an added complexity for, for zero carbon fuels in shipping in that you have to have them available at both ports. That's what it comes down to, right? You can't have it just in one. Otherwise, you know, and people forget that, right? Like, so, you know, the UK has a great policy, but unless wherever you're sailing also has a policy that enables you to buy cost effectively, you've got a problem and the route won't decarbonize and vessels will either stay on LNG or they'll stay on on HFOs. And that's that's something that, that people very often overlook, but also a very, very simple challenge that creates the risk that you're talking about. Now, if we can address that and you can prove that you have a zero carbon fuel, I would think that you look a lot less risky to a lot of a lot of investors and a lot of financiers in general uh, who are in the space than LNG did, you know, even a year or two ago. And something actually I think that all of this um, throws up, because I think all those points are right, you know, I mean, you know, and they're not, by the way, unique to shipping, right? I mean, we see this in aviation as well, right? The question of, you know, how do you get around the, you know, chicken and egg there? I mean, to an extent, this has been the perpetual discussion around mobility, right? I mean, this is the whole reason why Tesla has always been vertically integrated to try and circumvent some of those issues. Um, it's the reason why uh, you had the original Nikola outreach to try and do that. You know, to some extent, that's part of the plug proposition of being a vertically integrated business. So, you know, a lot of those themes for hydrogen in marine are not unique to marine, um, you know, and I think you're right to, to touch on them. Something that I wonder if it is unique to marine, um, or maybe it is a broader conversation topic too, is kind of this element around when we talk about um, climate change, sometimes we think almost obsessively about CO2 reduction, um, especially in hydrogen, we think quite aggressively about that. But obviously, it is about more than that. It's actually a sort of a broader broader point around sustainability and around things like air quality um, and sort of management of the environment. And one of the big issues in shipping is that actually air quality is quite a big issue in some of these markets, right? I mean, you know, hydrogen may be a solution for some of the air quality issues compared to bunker fuels, but it is very far from clear that actually, you know, combusting um, for example, ammonia or combusting methanol in a port area is necessarily going to be the best long-term solution from an air quality side. Um, you know, and, and actually, how willing and tolerant people will be of that, even if the fuel itself, from a CO two side, is clear. And that's before we get into leaks, which actually of all the emotive things on the shipping fuel side, the thing the public probably get and understand the most is when there's a leak, you know, and it's the sort of horrible images of all the birds sort of dying from oil and, you know, the fish being washed up, but, you know, ammonia leaks and methanol leaks are pretty nasty too. And those are two of the biggest fuels being looked at from green hydrogen in the sector. So I wonder whether that's something that, you know, I don't hear too many people in the industry talking about that. I wonder just from your side, whether that's something that is coming up more. I think, I think there's a greater, you know, look, we, we've seen this with, you know, a lot more conversation about methane leakage, right, and the global warming potential attached to that, right? We've seen this, you know, as a conversation starting to emerge about a lot of the gases, right? And, and look, I think when we talk about ammonia combustion, particularly for, for to just to dial it in a bit for a moment, there is an increasing number of people asking the question around NOx emissions, Right. And, you know, nitrous oxide is, is a pretty bad thing to be 
spinning out of your 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 engine if you're going to combust it, right? But but this is one of the great, really great arguments for fuel cells. And um, whether you use solid oxide fuel cell, whether you use PEM fuel cells with a reformer, um, you know, splitting out the gas, right? So the nitrogen and the hydrogen being broken back out. However, you choose to design it, the fuel cells don't don't get you the NOx emissions, right? And then we're back to the the hydrogen conversation of water vapors and you know that's and air purification essentially. Um, I think, like, look at combustion. When you combust uh, something like ammonia, you know what the exhaust gas should look like. You also know what it takes to manage that, and the standards need to be applied rigorously wherever that's going to occur. Um, because you know it can be managed, it can be treated, it can be scrubbed, and those are known processes. Those are used today in in chemicals facilities around the world. So, all we're really talking about here in 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 that side of it is actually applying the standards and the technologies that we have for exhaust gas management properly and fully. Um, is that going to add a bit of cost? Probably going to add a bit of cost, especially at the start. But I don't know that I've spoken with the uh, you know a. a a power systems developer or or kind of a shipbuilder on the on the kind of the technical side who isn't entirely aware of that and isn't already looking at it because they realize just because precisely to your point just because you take away the co2 doesn't mean that you've necessarily solved all of the problems and risk factors but um i think we have some pathways of solutions that work here and if you're designing a vessel to to be a green vessel you know, I go back to it. Why take the intermediate step when you take the full step and get yourself all the way there and get your 25-year, 30-year operational life pretty pretty, pretty set? And I think when you look at it over lifetime, that's why one of the, you know, kind of the first moves that we're seeing here is to, to move to the e-fuels because they are a pretty big step change. And those early kind of deployments, like eight vessels out of Maersk, there's a couple more coming from a few other places as well this year, I think. When you see those those deployments, they're really learning how to operate and manage those systems to avoid kind of some of the externalities that you're talking about. The other simple reality is, you know, this is going to be better in production pathway than managing fossil fuels. And the externalities that are attached to fossil fuel production and leakage are likely a lot worse from start to finish. You're, you're moving effectively, you know, uh, chemically toxic things, right? Versus hydrogen in a pipeline, as you well know, Chris, if it vents, it just vents. It's not. It's not reacting and causing you know I, you know damage to the local environment at the leak source. So yeah, once we hit the ammonia availability or the methanol point, yes, you've got to be very very careful. But all those you know kind of kind of deeper supply chain uh, production kind of risks are far far more benign than if you're if you're moving crude oil through to a refinery, for example. Yeah, I mean, Patrick, maybe a final final comment and thought on this one before we head away. I mean, you know, the, the, the fierce battle that is sort of the LinkedIn battle, and I emphasize the LinkedIn battle because, you know, there are arguments that happen on LinkedIn that most people in industry and the general public are completely and utterly oblivious about. But, you know, frequently is this argument around efficiency, and we've talked about this before. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of some information around round trip on some of these power to gas technologies saying that, you know, it can be as low as 15, 10% is the t- sort of round trip on it by the time you've converted, created the fuel and then you're using it. Um, my question a little bit here is, you know, efficiency is only relevant if you've got an alternative solution that actually does what needs to be done, right? Efficiency is irrelevant if there is no alternative. Now, my thought is on the battery side. Is there any technology you have seen or that's come across the desk, you know, from RMI side for things like solid state batteries or other forms of purely electric solutions 
that for those thinking, bear in mind the shipping industry is quite long term, right? People like Wilhelmsen are not talking about you know the next five or ten years where you know the fuel cell truck guys can always make the argument, look, if solid state comes in, it's gonna take another five years. It's going to take five years after that to get to any kind of scale. So, you know, you've got 10, 20 years where there's no good answer and vehicles turn around every five years anyway. So even if you believe batteries could be the future, they're not going to be for the next 10. It's still interesting. You could make that argument with fuel cells. As you point out, though, with ships, if your vessel is going to do 20, 40 years and it's going to take you five, six years from now to build it, that's quite a different starting point. So I wonder how you think about that. Uh, look, the the chair I sit in, I, I you know, you are always open to and looking for the next technology opportunity, and you are always trying to learn about it. Having said that, I don't know that I've seen a battery technology that's going to be suitable for deep sea vessels, right? And you know, that comes down to a few things, right? It comes down obviously to the the cargo loss, the weight of the battery, and the size of it that you're going to be having to transport. And it comes down to the the obvious energy density um, of of the battery per per unit of weight, right? Like it's it's you know shipping is in in many ways a very straightforward game. If if you can carry more and and power it at the same at the same rate, that's the win, right? If you have to sacrifice cargo, it becomes a more expensive uh, solution. Very simply, and yeah, look, maybe there's a, a battery technology that will become applicable, but I haven't seen it yet. And maybe some of the people in, in our teams that, that work specifically on batteries have some notions or ideas. But, but you know, I go, I go back to the, the very straightforward kind of point, you know, that, that I usually argue, which is, you know, these aren't in competition. And, and the reason it's a LinkedIn battle and, that you're, you know, most people don't know about it is because these are people fighting over, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, investments or, or in, you know, they're in companies trying to provide services good and good for them. But if you're taking a whole systems view, we're going to need both. And if we need both, we need both. We don't need one to be a winner and the other to be a loser and then find it in 20 years that they sectoral use cases now are in competition and we're not in a sustainable environment and we're using uh, resource extraction at an unsustainable rate. This is where the long-term game is. Efficiency is efficiency. If you can use Electron directly and there's no no kind of uh, penalty on it, yeah, you should definitely use it, right? It's the most efficient way to do it. If you have to store something, if you have to idle in a port, if you cannot, if you are sitting in the Straits of Dover right now trying to get in, um, you want something that you can turn off your engine or mitigate, really ramp down your engine or get somebody to come out and fuel you up a little bit if it comes to it. That you don't get with with kind of batteries to the same degree typically. Um, you know, I can't see tugboats running out to to stranded or port stranded uh, vessels to, to to charge them up for you know twenty four hours and then you know do one by one. It, it starts it strikes me as a challenging kind of use case, but that's why shipping has largely looked at um, at fuels, right? And and has looked again at fuels. I think look for batteries, you know, smaller vessels. You know, there's going to be some opportunities there for sure. The same way that direct hydrogen use uh, in in vessels is likely for smaller vessels rather than deep sea vessels. So ferries and things like that could could be you know fuel cell depending on size. Smaller again probably could be battery. And then it's a question of do you want to run batteries and use batteries in these use cases, or do you want to use hydrogen? And then you know do you want to use the screwdriver or do you want to use the hammer? You know like it's a question of what you're trying to do, and you should be picking the solution that works 
not trying to create these straw men competitions that that don't make a lot of sense. Sounds like we've got plenty of scope for another time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, look, I think we're going to wrap it there. Um, I'm sure we'll have to get Thomas back on for another time to talk a little bit more, and it'll be exciting to see where Wilhelmsen goes. I mean, I think the whole... You know, the whole role of decarbonizing shipping is so important. People can't sort of underestimate it. You know, 3% of global emissions currently forecast to be, was 6 to 10%, Patrick, by 2050 on current trajectory. So, you know, this is absolutely an essential thing to crack. And uh, I'm sure this won't be, this was the, our first on shipping, purely on shipping uh, on the EH podcast, but it certainly won't be the last. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Tomas Tronstad, Head of Shipping and Technology for the New Energy Division at Wilhelmsen Group, for joining us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.